What up, Misfits? Welcome to the Misfit Heroes Podcast. My name is Chris, and together we are going on a journey. Now, last episode, we were talking to Christina Dent, the executive director of End It For Good, a nonprofit organization based out of Mississippi that aims to decriminalize and destigmatize drug addiction using compassion versus judgment and shame. Now, if you haven't listened to that part yet, make sure that you do after this episode. The link is going to be down in the show notes below so you'll know where to find it. She provides a harrowing story into how being a foster parent for children of parents with drug-related offenses changed both her heart and her mindset. This is part two of that episode, and whereas last episode we talked about her personal story and how meeting the mothers of the children that she was fostering grew her personal understanding of how the drug war and drug culture was working, this episode's going to be a little bit different. In part two, we discuss the science of what causes addiction, how the drug war in America has created nearly as many problems as it has solved, and how we can all do our part to bring addiction to its knees. Misfits, it's time to end it for good. Here is the thrilling conclusion to Christina Dent's story. Playing the Misfit Heroes podcast. One of the things that I learned was how much addiction is driven by the amount of trauma a person has experienced in their life. So if you have someone who has experienced a lot of trauma in their childhoods, so it might be they had domestic violence in their family or um, they were abused in some way or they had a parent incarcerated or uh, a family member struggled with an addiction. There's a number of different um, they're called adverse childhood experiences. Um, and we know like there's been lots of studies done on this, that the the number of adverse childhood experiences that you experience increases your risk of ever trying illegal drugs in the first place. And it increases your risk of becoming addicted to them if you do try them, um, not because you are a worse person than anybody else, but it's because you have a lot of trauma that you've experienced. And what drugs do is help you feel better than you do right now. And so that feels good for somebody who's trying to deal with a lot of internal pain to find a way to numb some of that pain. Um, and so that was a big kind of really big um, learning point. And I know that you've read a, a book that I read on my journey. Um, and I'd love to talk a little bit about that, that rat park experiment. Cause I think it will be helpful sure. for people who are directly impacted by addiction because addiction can be, I heard it described one time as like being boiled alive in hot oil for family members of people who yeah. are experiencing that. And so I don't want to discount the pain that people who are listening right now are experiencing. I read a book called Chasing the Scream by an author named Johan Hari. And um, it was very eye-opening. A lot of the things that, we, that we've discussed in this podcast, they were mentioned a lot in that book. One of the things with the Rat Park experiment that was really amazing to me. So if you think about the traditional, um, those old campaigns from the 70s and 80s and 90s about, you know, this is your brain on drugs, right? They always had this, they always had this idea that they used this experiment as rats. They would take two rats, they would take one rat and give them just straight water. And then they would have another rat side by side with him in another cage. And they would give him, you know, water mixed with heroin. And the idea was that, well, the the rat that had the water with heroin inside of it kept drinking the heroin, kept drinking it, kept drinking it until it killed itself. And they said, oh, it happens every single time. The idea behind it, which I found really interesting, was that, well, all these rats have to do is just sit there and drink water. They don't have anything else in their life. They don't have anything else that a rat would enjoy in their life, you know. And then this scientist came along and had an idea. Well, what if we gave them other stuff to do? What if we gave them um, mates to have out, you know, hang out with? If they had friends, let's let's say, let's put a bunch of rats into a, a, a little fake city, and they little, literally created a little fake city. And I just thought it was so amazing when they had other things to focus on aside from just this one little uh, bottle of water that they're drinking out of, you know their lives were completely different and it sort of drastically changed the um, thought process of that, you know, this is why we're ad addicted to drugs because of this. Oh, it's, it's gotta be a chemical reaction inside of our brain. It's gotta be the actual drug itself that makes you addicted. It speaks a lot of volumes as to what you're saying about, you know, these people have a life outside of the drug and maybe they happen upon the drug and they get that in their life. But 
it's not defining their life. It's it's just being the the catalyst for they're doing it for a reason. And from what I read in that book, it was about how we address people that are going through some type of addiction. It really amazed me that one experiment sort of made such a massive difference with the thinking and the entire understanding of addiction as a whole. Reading that experiment to me too was just really eye-opening because it really helped me to see this addiction is not about bad people doing bad things. It really is about hurting people trying to feel better. And if we can kind of begin to reframe that, that even, even when people's behavior when they are addicted is really harmful, it's not because they are loving harming other people. Yeah. It is because for whatever reason, this drug is doing something for them that feels so important. It feels if you talk to people who are in active addiction or in recovery, they'll tell you it feels like I'm going to die if I can't get yeah. more of this. So people will do extreme things to avoid death or the the sense that I'm going to die if yeah. I can't get this. And so that, you know, that doesn't take away the pain for people who have a family member struggling with an addiction. It doesn't take away the pain of getting your money stolen or your grandmother's pearl necklace pawned so that somebody could get enough money for drugs. It doesn't take away the pain of people missing, you know, family events or being gone, irresponsible, you know, unable to hold down a job those kinds of things. But it does help us understand that making their lives more painful is not going to bring about the kind of healing that we want. Animating emotion of addiction is shame. That's kind of the core of what is happening. And yet what we've done is we have tried to say, if we make people feel even worse, if we make them feel even more shame, maybe that will sort of you know, dislodge this, whatever is in their brain, wake them up and help them to see, you know, that they need to change something. For a very small percentage of people, that's true. Uh, that, you know, hey, a few, a night in jail is really going to, you know, change my life. For the vast majority of people, it does not uh, because it doesn't deal with the reasons why they're using. And so, if, if unless you deal with the root cause of what that drug is doing for them, you know, they're just going to come back to it. That That's why even if you put people in solitary confinement, confinement in jail to get them, you know, sober from the physical dependency, which is a, an inhumane practice, but we hear it through the grapevine, that absolutely happens. Even if people become not physically dependent, most of the time they will relapse when they get in a situation where they're able to access that drug again. And it's not because the, you know, their, their body is no longer physically dependent on it, but the draw of the, of what the drug does for them is absolutely still there unless they're able to work through those deeper causes. So we've, we've focused on the thing people are using to deal with something and we haven't focused on what they're dealing with. Uh, and we've got to do that if we want to see better outcomes related to drug use and addiction. Otherwise, we're going to continue down the same path of traumatizing people in jail, disconnecting them from their family and community, making it impossible for them to find a job when they come back out with a criminal record. We're taking away all of the positive things from people that we know actually help people find sobriety. So family relationships, job, housing, purpose, and helping them heal from trauma. What a criminal justice experience does is it disconnects them from family, work, housing, purpose, and it gives them additional trauma. Jail and prison are incredibly traumatic environments. There's very little oversight. Lots of abuse of all kinds happens there. And so we, we put people into this traumatic, disconnecting experience, and then we put them back out on the street and we are baffled by why didn't that fix you? It, yeah. it only added more harm to a situation that was already harmful. And the irony there that I, I can't believe people don't see is that we literally take people out of that rack, that rat park or that rat city that they made and we put them right back. I mean, putting someone into a jail cell is literally like putting them back into that first cage that we talked about where they've got they've got one of two choices. And this is all you got to do all day. Yeah. And, and drugs are readily available in jails and prisons. So it, it isn't 
it doesn't make someone stop using drugs just because they're incarcerated because there's drugs all in our prison system. It really makes me think that we, as a culture, we're sort of treating we're treating the symptom rather than the cause. Yes. I mean, that's the entire point of that experiment. You know, one of the other things that it was brought up in the book that was very interesting to me as well is the socioeconomic issues that have sort of led to the drug war being started as a whole. And, you know, one of the things, there was a story about the jazz singer from the 20s, uh, Billie Holiday, and her story was really interesting. She had this, uh, she was singing this song called Strange Fruit, and in, in the 1920s, it was about lynchings in the South. And as a black woman, she was a black singer, um, she she kept singing this song, and there was this FBI officer that did not want to have anything to do with that. He didn't want that to be publicly known. And it was really interesting. And they actually, I think they made a movie about it, but the interactions that these two had um, sort of paved the way for the drug war to be created itself. And it, it was really amazing to me how this FBI agent, he was extremely racist. Uh, I mean, everyone, not, not only, just on things that he said. I mean, all of the colleagues that knew him knew that he was nothing yeah. but racist. And this was clearly the reason why he is sort of um, going after Billie Holiday. And you can read into that story a lot further, but I mean, it's interesting to me how that one interaction between two people um, led to this entire creation of the war on drugs in America and led that person in particular to later go on to um, basically be the reason why marijuana was deemed illegal. It's a really interesting bit of history that sort of played along that entire path. Yeah. You know, speaking of the drug war, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, and I'm sure I probably know the answer, but what are your thoughts on the quote unquote drug war in America? I mean, do you think it's changed America for the positive or do you think it's changed it for the negative? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think uh, definitely for the negative. But I would I would sort of um, caveat that a little bit by saying there are there are some people like the man you're talking about, Harry Anslinger, who his own writings are <laughs> are filled with his <laughs> hatred for people who use drugs, hatred for people who are not white, just all sorts of things. Um so there are people like him who got, kind of had this specific plan in mind. Uh, but there are a whole bunch of other people who have supported the drug war out of um, good intentions. Uh, there are people like me who thought, you know, this, you know, cracking down, going after, you know, all of these people, this is going to kind of clean up society. This is going to help families. This is going to keep kids out of you know, homes with addicted parents. And, um, and I think a lot of people, even we do a lot of work with law enforcement who come to our events that we host all over Mississippi and other speaking engagements we do nationally. Um, and, you know, the vast majority of them, people who got into that profession because they want to help people, um, they want to help their communities. And this is what they are, have been tasked to do and told this is the this is the path. You know, we got to just keep enforcing. We got to enforce more. We just got to get more budget and, and get even more agents out there policing drugs. Um, and so it's interesting kind of to see their own frustration with it because they are on the front lines of it and they see that it doesn't work. I mean, they can, they will all tell you, even if they disagree with us on the, the best path forward, even if they disagree that anything should be, that any kind of drug should be legally regulated, even if they disagree that, you know, we should stop arresting consumers just for drug possession, um, they will all tell you, well, we do see what happens is we arrest the same people over and over again, and we make a big drug bust, you know, we, we take, you know, some pounds of cocaine off the street or something. but it's not like cocaine is not present in our town. I mean, you, you think about drug cartels are sophisticated business operations, uh, moving billions and billions of dollars a year. These are not people who just woke up yesterday and are like, I don't know what to do. I'll just, you know, figure it out. These are smart people running multi-billion dollar businesses. And so, you know, you think about like, does Walmart, uh, do they just not have product on their shelf because somebody took some of it, like somebody shoplifted some of it. No, they understand how much of it is going to get interdicted and they send that amount more 
in their next shipment because they're they're gauging that a certain percentage of it's going to get interdicted. Same thing happens with cartels. When we make a big drug bust, um, you know, it's it's a drop in the bucket. They they work that into how much you know, how much of this cocaine do we need to ship? Well, we know a certain, you know, a very small percentage, but some certain percentage of it is going to get caught. Um, maybe it's somewhere I've heard, I've heard law enforcement give their own statistics of what they guess. And it is somewhere from uh, less than 1% to somewhere between, you know, 5%, but probably less than 1% of all drugs are ever taken off the street by law enforcement. Not because they're not trying, but because, Anytime you have demand, you're going to have supply and you can smuggle yeah. drugs in all sorts of different ways. You can put them in a drone, you can put them in a, a tire, you can put them in, you know, it's just, it's a, it is a losing battle because there's consumers on the other end who want drugs, which is why we have drugs in prisons. You so get to just sit with this for a minute. We have drugs in maximum security prisons. We cannot keep drugs out of the most secure locations that we have. And yet we are continuing to try to fight this war to keep them out of, you know, the, the whole rest of the, the free world. Um, and it, it is not only is it, is it not able to be done, um, but the, the cost of continuing to try to do it. Somebody like me who's never used drugs, I've had a, a very, um, you know, Christian childhood and, and never rebelled. I've been following the Lord my whole life. Why am I passionate about this? Well, it's because I see this collateral damage from this approach. And I think the collateral damage yeah. for human life is so great that I can walk that tightrope of saying, I don't want people using drugs, but I also don't want the collateral loss of life and destruction of families that comes from trying to forcibly make them not use drugs by criminalizing, prohibiting, incarcerating. That's the moral weight that I, I want to invite people to consider. It's not just about, you know, well, if I think drug use is wrong, then they should be illegal. Well, that's not true. There's all kinds of things that are wrong that aren't illegal. Look at the, the Ten Commandments. Only eight of them, uh, only two of them are like patently illegal, like murder and theft. But the most <laughs> of them we haven't made yeah. illegal and no no Christians are saying we should outlaw, you know, uh, you know, whatever. We have to contend with that just because we disagree with something, just because something is uh, we believe it's wrong, even if it's something that was sin, that there's it does not immediately follow that it should be made illegal and we should start putting people in jail for it. Um, and I think that yeah. I think that weight of the number of people who are living under the violence of of cartels and gangs, the number of people who are dying from preventable overdoses, the number of families who are being torn apart and individual lives who are being destroyed through incarceration. We have to grapple with that moral weight um, as well as this other side. And that that ended up being what what changed my mind was there's no perfect solution, but I, I want to find the solution that has the best opportunity to reduce harm to people who are made in the image of God. And I became convinced that it was laying down this criminal justice approach, shifting towards a health-centered approach. Yeah, it, it's really about the people and not the actual product itself. You know, it amazes me, you know, the thought process from a lot of people that are in the church or, you know, modern believers is, oh, well, I could never do that. I've I've heard that a million times with a million other different topics as well, you know. And we used the phrase earlier, drugs and alcohol. That phrase gets thrown around a lot as if drugs and alcohol are the same thing, you know. And it, it seems like all of these substances, I mean, I know people that are addicted to coffee. I know people that can't function every morning with without coffee. I, I don't talk to me. I haven't had my coffee yet. That's a t-shirt. Right. I see right, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And we're proud of it. We're proud of the fact that we're dependent on coffee. Yeah. So it's like, I mean, why do you, why do you think that is? Do you think that's because of the legality of drugs? I mean, could you imagine a shirt saying, don't talk to me. I haven't had my cocaine right. this morning. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. It's, it, 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 it's the same thing. Do you think that's legality? Do you think it's the culture that we live in? I mean, what do you think is the sort of, um, separation there? Is it because, 
alcohol is sort of this industry that has sort of been aligned with, you know, oh, well, you go to a, you go to a sporting event or you go to a wedding and they've got an open bar. Like, yeah. is that what it is? What do you think is the cause for that separation of the two? So I think for most people, I think most people haven't put a lot of thought into that or they haven't thought about the fact that, wait, all of these are substances that change the way you feel. Some of them are more risky. Some of them change the way you feel to a greater degree. Um, but I don't, it was a long time before I started to see substances on a continuum rather than like categories of like, oh, the the good substances like coffee or the really bad ones like, you know, cocaine or heroin. Um, I was talking to a pastor one time and he uh, ended up working with people who were um, addicted to heroin. And he said that one of the things that he began to to kind of piece together over his time was that we're all substance users. We're just talking about degrees. Yeah. So is it, yeah. is it coffee? Um, so I think we've, we've kind of made some substances socially acceptable and we have used, um, you know, uh, we've got alcohol, which is very much socially acceptable. Then we have tobacco, which is kind of, you know, used to be very socially acceptable. Then as the health risks of that became more apparent, um, there's been a lot more social pressure to stop smoking, but we haven't, yeah. the important thing with that is we haven't used a criminal justice response with that. We've used a health yeah. response with it and we've been able to significantly reduce smoking rates, not by putting people in prison for smoking, but by educating them on the very real impact that smoking can have on your life and health. And so I, I think we, we do have to grapple with the ways that we have thought about, well, these are the good drugs and these are the bad drugs. Uh, if you look at, there's a um, professor, uh, Dr. David Nutt, and he did a, a study on all of these different drugs and like their relative harm scale. He kind of created this harm scale for them, like the harm that they do to the person who's using them and the harm that they do to the community. Like when somebody's using this drug, what kind of community harm is that? Alcohol is by far the most harmful drug uh, of any, far above heroin, cocaine, anything like that, to the person who uses it as well as to the community around them. And tobacco is right under that in terms of we've got these, you know, the the two, um, uh, not necessarily to the community, but the two of the most harmful, most addictive substances on the planet are alcohol and tobacco, and they're already legal and regulated. Not because they're not harmful, but because we have chosen to address them in a way that reduces harm rather than just trying to go scorched earth and, you know, eradicate them from the face of the earth. Uh, and I think we would see um, a great deal of reduced harm from these other drugs, too. But there's a, a caveat there because I, I'm definitely an incrementalist. I think we don't you know, legalize everything tomorrow um, because part of the challenge that we have because we have chosen prohibition is that we do not have social norms around these other substances and their uh, ability to be accessed in a, in, you know, by adults in a legal way because they've always had to be hidden. And so we've developed these social norms around alcohol. You know, you don't you don't drink before, you know, 10 a.m. or whatever, you know, people are going to begin to wonder. There's all of these different um, things that have we we have understood and have been kind of enfolded into our society. We don't have those for other substances, and we need to develop those along with bringing them back into um, some kind of legal, you know, uh, regulation. So I definitely think there's there's a lot there that we have to contend with, but it's it's easier to just say, uh, bad substances are illegal and okay ones are legal, but there's no evidence behind that. And we we got to reckon yeah. with that and say, hmm, maybe this is a little more about stigma than it is about actual any kind of research on a on a substance. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. You know, I was um, I was watching a documentary the other day and speaking a little bit to what you were talking about, you know, there's this sort of this corporate lifestyle. You know, once you make something legal, like in the, you know, alcohol was, during prohibition was basically exactly like, you know, these fentanyl and these drugs that are going yeah. on right now. You didn't you didn't have you didn't have alcohol by volume 6% labels on your on your you know average store bought beer you had whatever jimmy down the street yep. made in his bathroom. absolutely you know yeah I mean? it was a free for all total totally it's a complete lack of control it's not like the ultimate control it's a total abdication of any kind of control and i was watching this documentary the other day about the coca-cola company and you know it's it's sort of 
I don't know if it's widely known, but it's sort of secretly known that there's this old wives tale that Coca-Cola had was um, their secret ingredient was cocaine is what they said. And they're but they're actually the only company in America that's legally allowed to produce the coca plant. Um, it's, it was part of this documentary and, and, you know, there's also like the pharmaceutical industry, they've risen to this multi-billion dollar industry that, you know, they've, they've basically, they've used doctors prescribing anti-pain medications and have essentially funded and created this, this addiction epidemic. And, you know, I, I would love to know your thoughts on this. Do you sort of think there's like an ethical incentive for these corporations to work towards addiction research to try and say, yes, we know about these things, but we want to get people off of them? Um, and do you think they should sort of be legally bound to that? Do you think do you think they have a responsibility for um, making these massive products to also offer solutions for people that do get addicted to them? Yeah. So that's probably the, the most challenging question around legalization is, you know, well, what do you do then when you have <clears throat> prescriptions? If you've got a doctor that's over prescribing, like how do you, how do you handle that? What do you do with pill mills that, you know, were happening, you know, 10 years ago? Um, <clears throat> and it is a really challenging problem. So I'm, um, I am one who is uh, skeptical of a prescription only method because it puts uh, doctors as the ones who hold the keys. Um, and we just know that if people want to access a substance, whether or not a doctor will give it to them, they will find it somewhere. Um, but they'll go to the street to get it. And so actually the same, um, the professor who did the Rat Park experiment, Dr. Bruce Alexander, I was uh, able to connect with him. I found his email address on the internet while like during this journey of learning. Wow. And I was like, I just need to tell him how much <laughs> Rat Park like really reshaped the way that I thought about, is it the drug or is it the cage that people are in? Um, and so that has turned into just a, a great back and forth uh, over the last couple of years. And one of the things he said, because I was asking him about this, you know, what this is a challenging problem. Um, and he said, yeah, I, I, and he's written about this also. He said, I think we're going to have to reckon with that, that people, that adults are going to have to be able to access um, some level of maybe low dose opioids without a prescription, because otherwise you, you have what we have now, which is pain patients can't get their prescription because we've had this big crackdown on prescriptions. And yet, People are using drugs anyway. They're just getting drugs off the street and pills that they think are prescription pills and they're not actually prescription pills. But as long as we only allow some of these substances to be accessed through prescriptions, um, then you do have only doctors holding the keys and only pharmaceutical industries able to produce those things uh, for long periods of time. And so uh, so that for me is it's the biggest struggle of how would you regulate these substances um, in a way that yeah. reduces harm the most. Uh, but we, you definitely see that there are countries who they do it in Canada, they do it in Switzerland and other countries where they actually give people who are addicted to heroin heroin, um, which is like that's mind blowing to us. What? You got to get them off the heroin. Yeah. That's how you get their life back together. And what they found is that, no, actually, if you can. Um, if you can bring people into a program, so the way they do these, the only way they can do it legally is they have to use the heroin on site. So people can come to one of these clinics and they can, if they're enrolled in the program, um, they can use heroin three times a day if they want to. And they can use however much they want that's not going to kill them. So they do it in Switzerland um, under the care of a medical professional and they use it. They go about their day. They can come back and use again. And what they found is that rather than deepening a person's addiction, what it does is it allows them to rebuild their life. So it stabilizes them. Yeah. They're not in the rat race of how am I going to get my heroin all day? So they can have a job and they can begin to rebuild family connections. Um, and the vast majority of people begin lowering their dose on their own. And most of them over the course of a couple of years will stop using altogether. Very few of them remain in the program long term. Most of them, which makes sense when we think about, you know, 
what people want in their lives is meaning and purpose and family and work and all of these things that help us build a life that we want to be fully present for. So instead of trying to, to, you know, make people's lives so painful, they'll stop using, they're taking the exact opposite approach and saying, how can we help them to stabilize their lives and build a life that they want to be fully present for? Because until that, until that glass of life is full of, of good things, uh, you can't just take the heroin out of it. I mean, the heroin is replacing the the lack of whatever it might be. Um, so just to to take the heroin away isn't going to fix that problem. But the the need for that heroin might go away if we can fill that glass uh, with other things. Um, and that can be a, a hard process. It can be a really long process. Some people the vast majority of people are not ready to stop using drugs when their family member wants them to, when their parent wants them to. Um, and so we have this uh, challenging situation where we have um, a lot of coercion to stop using. It's very ineffective. Very few people stop using in a coerced um, when they're in a coerced setting. Um, and yet that's kind of been the approach that we've taken. And so, uh, there is great research out there that shows if we can keep people alive long enough, most people will age out of a drug addiction. I know that is mind blowing. We have no category for that. Everything we have been told is no, you have to make them stop. You've got to make their life so bad that they will finally, you know, say, I've got to be done with this. Um, and and that what we what we know is that people they can have stable lives even while they're still using if we can get them out of that rat race of, of constantly trying to find the drug on the street and they can be present for work and family and they can also even if they're not ready to stop using right now they can be kept alive long enough that most of them in their 30s this tends to happen most people who have an addiction tend to um it 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 ends up um over time, not becoming an addiction anymore. Um, as their life stabilizes and, you know, a lot of people, you get in your thirties and you start to feel like, okay, I can, you know, you, maybe you have kids, maybe, you know, these other things, not for everyone. Um, but a lot of the, the harm that we're seeing and a lot of the pain that families are going through, um, a lot of it is stemming from, this constant coercion and dodging of coercion and fear over what's going to happen. You know, I, I made them go to treatment. Now they're out. Now they relapsed. D did they die in the relapse? Are they, you know, it's so much pain. Going back to what you were saying earlier about how Canada and Switzerland did that. I know that Portugal had another um, very similar situation with that as well, where they basically decriminalized pretty much everything, I think. And it was, it was, it was a very similar result. You know, it goes back to what you were saying when you fix what the actual, why the person, the person's why for why they're using the, the, the drug, it basically fixes the how they're yes. doing it. Right. We've been saying it this whole time and, you know, it seems like society as a whole tends to view substance abuse as sort of like an over there issue. You know, like, oh, well, that's over there in Portugal. That's that's great for them. Oh, that's over there in Switzerland. That's great for them. And yes, they may be smaller countries, but it, it really takes a personal intimacy, a personal connection with those people to sort of help them get onto that change, help them get onto that changed lifestyle. Um, so, you know, in your particular personal interactions, you know, how has having this issue pop up in your personal life with people, you know, personally, how has that affected your walk in this area? Yeah. It's really helped me to see that a lot of what people experience is hidden. So we think we know what, you know, our friend's life is like, or the person sitting next to us in the pew at church. And what I began to have happen as I began to talk about this publicly, so I'd, you know, post little things on Facebook about rethinking, you know, criminalizing substance use and addiction. And, and what I would have is like very few people would say anything on the actual post on Facebook, but then people <laughs> would come up to me in person and say, I've been watching mm, what yeah. you have been uh, posting and I just wanted to thank you for it. And then they would go into, you know, my son is struggling with an addiction and, you know, this is what's happening with him. Or 
one woman came up to me and she said, you know, my mom struggled with um, an amphetamine addiction and, you know, it just devastated our family because of the, uh, the, the community just ostracized us, even though we were an, you know, an integral part of the community previously, when they found that out, you know, everyone just kind of pushed us away because they just thought she must be a terrible person after all. Um, and so, you know, those experiences just have helped me see there is so much that are going on in that's going on in people's lives that we're not privy to. And um, the way that we talk about these things sets the tone for whether or not we are a safe person. So a long time ago, we were talking, I was talking about a podcast I just heard. So the podcast, they were talking about something totally unrelated. And they were saying, you know, well, I mean, it's not just you know, it, I mean, it's not the, it's not just other kind of people that do this bad behavior. You know, it's not, and then they kind of fished around for like, how could I illustrate this? And they said, you know, it's not just drug addicts that do this. Uh, you know, it's people like us. Um, so that, that podcast was not about drug use. It wasn't about addiction, but what came to their mind is they were trying to think up who, who is a group of people I can illustrate we are not like. It was drug addicts. They're, they're the people we're not like. So those kinds of things, when we make those kind of offhanded comments, we don't even think about it. It's so ingrained in our society to use people who use drugs as sort of the illustration of people that, you know, we don't want our kids to be like them. We don't want they're not like us. Um, and that is incredibly painful. And it shuts down the ability to communicate and support for people who are struggling with a family member who's going through an addiction, which is almost every family now. So the chances of you being in a conversation with someone who is directly impacted by addiction are incredibly high, whether you think they are yeah. or not. Um, and so we can, especially I feel so passionate about this for the church, to, to proactively create the kind of safety and welcome that people need. They're not going to float that out there if they're unsure of how you're going to respond to it. They're not going to say my son's yeah. struggling with a heroin addiction if they're worried that your eyes are going to get huge and you're going to be like, oh, a, a, did you say heroin? Um, you know, yeah. they need to see that. No, we're we understand people struggle in lots of different ways and we're here to support no matter what that might be. And instead of Instead of using that as sort of our negative, what if we begin incorporating that into our conversation around the things that lots of people struggle with? You know, people struggle with gossip, people struggle with substance use, people struggle with, and we begin to, uh, I don't mean normalize it in like, it's not a big deal, but normalize it as in, this is a thing that people like us struggle with. At the end of the day, it, it really just seems like having compassion and, and empathy for these people is, is so important. What do you think the best way of addressing this issue with compassion and empathy and morality? What's the solution? How do we move forward with this? How do we move away from just arresting and locking people away to helping them so they don't have these issues yeah. in the future? So I think you can look at that from kind of a, a, a church perspective, like how can churches help? And I think, you know, for churches to begin to to embrace people who are uh, in early recovery, maybe embrace people who are still struggling with an addiction to maybe they host a, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. They allow a, a meeting to happen in their, you know, their church building. Um, now, AA is not the right approach for everyone for recovery, but it's just one way a church can easily open their doors to something that can work for some people. Um, so that, you know, creating those kinds of cultures and communities where people can come and feel um, at home is really, really important and begin to develop deep community and relationships. Uh, because for people coming out of active addiction, they are leaving behind their, uh, their whole community. They're leaving behind all of their friends who are still using. Um, I had one woman tell me, you know, it's, it's just the loneliest feeling to, to try to enter sobriety. You don't like who, you know, the, the, the people you were hanging out with don't want to hang out with you because you're not using anymore. And the people who aren't using don't trust you and they think you're just going to go start using again. So they don't want to hang out with you either. And so you're just kind of alone in this super vulnerable position of being brand new in recovery. And yet nobody wants to hang out with you because everyone's suspicious of you. Um, so how can we help to provide spaces where there can be deep community and relationships for people to, to exit 
um, addiction. And then from a from a policy perspective, what I would hope to see is here in Mississippi, we just passed uh, medical marijuana legalization. Um, I would love to see, you know, adult use legalization of marijuana. And I've never used marijuana. I don't have any interest in marijuana. Um, but I do have an interest in people not being arrested for possessing it. I do have an interest in people not living in high crime communities because that industry is operating illegally. And so I, I think I would say on a, on a policy side, that would be a great step towards bringing some of that market back legal again, um, bringing those consumers back into being you know, treated just as as regular people if they don't have a problem. And if they do have a problem, let's treat that as the health crisis that it is. Um, and then with other substances, you know, there are things like psychedelics that seem to be um, also similar to marijuana in that the studies on medical usage for some of those psychedelics, that there is very real medical use for treating uh, mental health disorders and other things. And so bringing those back legal, allowing them to be used by doctors in a medical setting, um, but also allowing, you know, for those markets, again, not to be underground, but to be brought back legal again. I often think of this, Chris, as like backing into legalization for me, like, because I just don't like, I don't, I don't want people out there using drugs. Like this is not, this is not, oh, Christina changed her mind and wants to go get high. Like not at all. Um, this right. is just like saying, yeah. ah, as, as uncomfortable as it might make me feel, I think this is like the best way that we can reduce harm to people from these substances. So I think taking yeah. those steps of first, we can take that step of marijuana. Maybe the next step is psychedelics. Maybe the next step is like coca leaves, you know, not crack cocaine, but like coca leaves that people used to to use and coca tea. Like, and you can, you can chew them, them you can put them in tea. It's, you know, much yeah. milder form of from the coca plant. So I think taking those steps and learning as we go, making adjustments as we go. But I think the 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 core piece that we have to reckon with is people will bring up all kinds of reasons why this isn't going to work. You know, well, there's this problem with legalization. Well, there's that problem with legalization. Absolutely. There is no perfect solution, but we have to reckon with all of the problems that legalization has, prohibition has worse. So are there, you know, regulators yeah. that don't do their job on on marijuana markets? Sure. There are zero regulators in the underground marijuana market. Like <laughs> there's there's no regulation yeah. there. So, uh, you know, the majority that's well regulated, that's a lot better than yeah. no regulation. Um, which so, do you want, right? Yeah, yeah. So we have to it's it's almost like we we act like we're in a neutral state and we say if there's any problem with legalization, then we're not going to go there. We're not in a neutral state. We're yeah. living with like massive amounts of human harm from prohibition. So for me, I, I'm I'm like hold it, weighing it on the scales. There's harm both ways. I mm -hmm. think there's 10x harm from prohibition than there is from allowing substances to be sold legally. Like that's, that is how much that collateral damage is just this explosion of harm across all these different sectors of society, um, which is what ended up changing my mind and catalyzing me into starting an organization to invite other people into this conversation. My, we're not a faith-based yeah. organization, but I am particularly passionate about the church engaging um, on this. Not because I want pastors preaching about legalization, don't don't hear me on that, um, but because <laughs> I don't know how uh, well the response would be for that one. <laughs> no, 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 no. I do not want that. I'm. I that should be separate. Uh, that's a separate policy decision yeah. people need to make. Don't bind their consciences on that. Um, but we need to be engaged in this, and we need to be thinking about the best way that we can respond, or we're going to continue to get these negative outcomes. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. You know, what is it, end it for good? What exactly does your organization do, and your focus, and you know, how can people get involved with that? What are you looking to yeah. achieve? So, end it for good is a we're a five hundred one c three nonprofit. And we do education and advocacy work. So, it started out as a book discussion on the book you referenced, "Chasing the Scream" by Johan Hari. So oh, yes, really? <laughs> I read that um, early on in my trying to learn about this. And it was, it still is the most helpful thing I read to kind of give this big overarching picture of how we got the laws we have, what's happened because of them, and then the hope of what could happen if we change them from other places in the world that are trying different approaches. 
Um, and so I started those book discussions, never having this thought in my mind that I would ever start a nonprofit. Um, I just wanted to say, like, is anyone else interested in this? And they just kept growing. Yeah. It was like 12 people and then 25 people, then 50 people. Then somebody in another um, city in Mississippi asked me if I would come and lead one in their city. And it just grew and it became clear to me, oh, people really are interested in looking at different approaches to drugs that could provide better solutions. I'm not the only one. They just haven't had an opportunity to learn in a way that, you know, they they could engage with. And maybe that's because the only people they heard talking about, you know, marijuana legalization were like people wearing, you know, their tie-dye shirt and flying their marijuana flag. (laughs) You know, so they hear me talking about it and they're like, well, that's not her. So what else is here? They don't always have the best representatives. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. So we want to say, look, that's, that's their thing. Uh, It's free country. They can, they can do their thing. Um, But that's not our position. We're not pro-drug. We are pro-people. And we're looking at this from a, yeah. from a human flourishing perspective. And for people that want to get on board with this movement, with End It For Good, that's what they're getting on board with, not a, not a pro-drug movement. So we continue to do um, events all around Mississippi. We do speaking engagements all over the country. Um, and we focus entirely on bringing this invitation to rethink what we're doing with drugs to as many people as possible through you know, podcasts, through um, writing opinion pieces and newspapers, uh, all these different ways. We're always trying to dream up, how can we reach more people? How can we get more people? Uh, number one, understanding where the harm is coming from, because I certainly did not understand about criminalized markets and crime and overdose deaths from contamination. I didn't know any of that. I just thought, ah, these big, scary drugs. I don't know. Just crack down on them. So we want people to understand where yeah. the harm's coming from, understand the options for changing things that could get better outcomes. So that's what we do. So some people volunteer by connecting us with speaking opportunities. Um, some people volunteer by actually coming to an event and helping us with, you know, setup and um, all the things we do at events. Uh, some people volunteer by just like you mentioned my TED Talk just some of them, all they do is like send that out to somebody. They're like, Hey, watch this. And let's talk about this, these ideas. Um, And that's a little easier than like trying to launch into an explanation on your own. If you're new to the topic, you can just send people that 20 minute Ted talk and say, Hey, uh, let's talk about what she's talking about and see, you know, what we think about it. So if you're interested, if you're listening and you're interested Uh, Maybe you're not there. Maybe you're like, I don't know, there's something here, but I need to learn more. That's totally fine. Like I said, this was a two-year process for me. So um, go to enditforgood.com slash get started. And there's a couple of options right there on that webpage for ways that you can learn more. We've got all different ways that you can find at enditforgood.com that people can come and and join, whether that's joining to learn or joining to get involved. Um, We would love to have people there. Our our mission is to invite people to support approaches to drugs that prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. Fantastic. Well, we'll put links to all that information down in the show notes down below. So Misfits, go check them out. It's a really interesting organization and you've just got a wealth of information. Um, And I I don't feel like we've even covered half of what we could here today, but I just, I I think that you're a very knowledgeable person and you know, you you definitely know your stuff. So I'm really impressed with everything that I've seen from you so far. You know, do you guys have like a social media and Instagram, TikTok, any of that stuff? Uh, it is on the website. You can go, we're across uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at End It For Good MS, MS like Mississippi. Um, or you can find me okay. across those platforms at Christina B. Dent. So End It For Good kind of posts more shareable content like, um, you know, infographics and things like that. I do more of um, kind of digging a little deeper into maybe it's a question somebody asked me at an event and I'll hop over to social media and answer that question in a little more detailed way. Um, So, yeah, come come find me. Come find End It For Good. We love a conversation. All right. Well, Misfits, you know where to go. It's down below. Um, we will make sure that you all connect. Christina, this has been a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed sitting here and talking to you. You know, um, we're getting down towards the end of the episode, and at the end of every episode, I ask all of my guests the same question, and it's one question in two parts. What was the last goal that you completed, and what was the next goal that you want to set for yourself? 
this is a good day to ask me that question because today <laughs> was my, I had, we had set this like internally with our team, this goal that by, um, by today, my book proposal would be finished oh, um, to write this story um, into and, and a lot more about my childhood and um, kind of what led me to this into a book. And so I've been working on this proposal. And, you know, like with anything, there's like a thousand things that get on your calendar and you're like, oh, I just can't work on it today or whatnot. So today was the deadline. Like I will have this thing done. And I finished it at noon yeah. today. And so I, I had I had five hours to spare with finishing this book <laughs> proposal I've been working on for like a couple of months. Um, so I'm really, really excited about that and about the future of this turning into a book. So that's definitely my one that I that I finished that is my most recent and a really big goal that I've been working towards that's done. Um, and my next goal is going to be to get this book out into the world. Um, I'm really excited about it. I've been working on it off and on for two years and um, started kind of during COVID. Um, I just think it is the the next piece of being able to share you know, there's only so much you can share in a 20 minute TED talk. Uh, yeah. And that TED talk is a weaving of my life and experiences and also what we've been talking about kind of on the, the policy side. Um, but I think there are so many people, particularly Christians, who just feel this conflict, this internal conflict over, you know, is this consistent with my faith? Can I really change my mind about this? And I, I want for this book to invite them into my life um, and into my journey on this in a much deeper way. Um, and to be able to, to share how, how God took someone like me and changed my heart and then invite them to consider how that might impact their own lives as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, that's great. I, I actually, I gotta be honest with you 100%, right? So this whole time we've been talking, I've just been sitting here like, this girl needs to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you're so passionate about it. Chris. Yeah. It's going to happen. Yeah. It's going to happen. It well, is, other than fostering is like the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. But it will happen and it's little by little, piece by piece. Yeah. Well, I totally believe it for you. I know that you're very passionate about the subject. And like I said, you're a wealth of knowledge on it. Well, it has been a pleasure, Christina. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and sit down with me. Um, one more time, where can people find information about your organization and just let us know how to find you? Yep, they can go to enditforgood.com. That's E-N-D, enditforgood.com, or across social media at enditforgoodms or at Christina B. Dent. All right, very good. Well, Miss Fitz, go check her out. You will not be disappointed. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Christina. I really appreciate your time, and I hope you have a great evening. Thanks, Chris. You too. All righty. All right, Miss Fitz, that's the end of this first part of the episode. And no, it's good, right? Be sure to come back next episode for the conclusion of Christina's story. As always, I want to thank you so much for listening, and thanks again to our sponsors. If you want to support any of the sponsors of this podcast, there are affiliate links in the Sponsors tab of our website over at www.misfit-heroes.com. You can also find links to all of our social media there, so be sure to follow us for immediate up-to-date info about the podcast. Please, if you enjoyed this podcast and you want to help me out, do me a favor, hit the subscribe button down below so you're notified of new episodes as they're released, and make sure to leave a rating or review of the show on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Truly Misfits, I love you, thank you so much for listening, and until the next time, be kind, love one another, and be a hero.